It's January 17th, 2022. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 163 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Salam, dostan aziz. Hello to all of you out there. Welcome to another one of our special themed episodes of Rook for these weeks. Hello, Gurbi Shaya. Are you excited? Yes, very. On, uh, last week we had the, the Tennis Titans. This week, today, we are focusing on the tech builders. That is two remarkable humans of Iranian descent, both of them having been outstanding entrepreneurs in the arena of research, technology, and innovation, both now vastly successful. So first up, an award-winning PhD in entrepreneur has been called one of the most influential people in UK healthcare, Ali Parsa joins me from London, England. And then the massively successful tech entrepreneur, investor, and CEO of Code.org, Hadi Paratovi. He joins us from Seattle, Washington for our second feature chat. That's all coming up. And we are coming to you on rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com, it's there that you can link to all of our platforms and where you can become a patron or a sponsor. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook and see us on social media, switch over to YouTube or Instagram right now at Rook Media. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. All right, let's get to our guests. This is a special themed episode of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is The Tech Builders. talk about successful people in our Iranian diaspora, I'm not sure there's a way to overstate the success of my first feature guest today. In fact, he has been listed in the Times in the UK as one of the 100 people to watch in Britain. Dr. Ali Parsa is a British-Iranian healthcare entrepreneur, former investment banker and engineer, who says he has dedicated his life to putting an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of every person on earth. He's the founder and CEO of the digital healthcare company Babylon Health and the co-founder and former CEO of Circle Health. Ali was born in Rasht and left Iran at the age of 16 in the aftermath of the Iranian revolution, looking for a new beginning as a teenager. After teaching himself O and A levels, he attended the University of London, where he studied civil and environmental engineering. Then he continued at UCL, earning a PhD in engineering physics, and then had a successful career in investment banking. He's now known as an entrepreneur who's pushing the boundaries of artificial intelligence. 
And he's become an award winner in various fields, including the healthcare space, and has had resounding material success. Most recently, the Health Service Journal recognized Ali as one of the 50 most influential people in UK healthcare. And in May of last year, Ali was given a place on the Sunday Times Rich List as one of the most wealthiest people in the UK. Right now, Dr. Ali Parsa joins me from London, England. Hello, sir. Hi, Jian. Thank you so much for your extremely kind introduction and for having me. Hasta nawashida. I mean, that is, it's quite it's quite a list of accomplishments. I think you could just quit now if you want to at this point. Um, you know how it is. I, I, when people write write about people, it's usually exaggerated in one direction or another. Nothing is ever as good or as bad. That is true, but I don't think we can deny the trajectory of things you've done. First of all, let me get this straight. When you launched a healthcare app in 2014 that enables remote consultations, did someone tip you off that there's going to be a global pandemic within a decade that would make your your product near essential? Uh, They did not, but it was obvious that uh, the trend uh, of things and the way they were going, and it was also obvious that healthcare is not being delivered in the way that it should be delivered. Uh, The pandemic was just something that happened. And actually, it didn't affect our business uh, in the way that you imagine, because uh, our business didn't increase because of the pandemic. Our work uh, increased because of the, uh, if you want, the general trend towards digitization of healthcare on one hand, and towards a move to value-based care as opposed to fee-for-service care on the other hand. It's interesting because, yes, you're right. I mean, it's it would have been my... Um, intuition or my my expectation that your that this would have been a boon to your business. I mean, one of the things I thought of is the digital first strategy and and business would have been important in its function for efficiency. Like if you told me about this in 2014, I would have gone, okay, this is a a way of avoiding having to actually go to a clinic in this fast paced world. Um, but now it takes on a whole other relevance as a a measure of safety for patients and doctors who want and can do this remotely. Was was that part of the plan from the start? Yes, and I think safety is in, it's 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 a very important part of this because um, uh, if you can imagine, right? Imagine being ill. Imagine having a child who is ill, uh, who's got a temperature, who's feeling miserable, and then you have to drag them out of their bed. Uh, put them on either public transport or if you're rich enough, uh, I know in Canada most people have cars, but that is not true in most of the world. Uh, and then you have to get them to a doctor's surgery. You have to wait for a long time, one of usually most infected places on earth. And then and then until that child can see a doctor for a short period of time. I mean, just In today's day and age, it's just a really archaic way to go see a doctor. Uh, when you are feeling at almost your worst. Uh, so so it didn't make sense from a convenience point of view, from a safety of the person point of view, but also the system doesn't make sense from a basic health point of view. If you look at your car, Jean, it used to break down often. Like 20 years ago, I used to drive my car, it broke down. I took it to a mechanic, they fixed it, I drove it, it broke down again. Right. Today, my car just doesn't break down because we buried so many sensors in it that it pre-warns you when something's going wrong. We do it with an airplane. We do it with almost every other right, asset. We right, have. right, right. We just don't do it with human bodies. So I think digitization of healthcare, it's not about 
delivering the old model of healthcare, which was sicker. Wait for somebody to get sick and then try and do your best for them. But it's actually about how do I keep you healthy? How do we try to prevent crises and emergencies by monitoring you closely enough and being able to deal with you before a small problem becomes a crisis. But how do you uh, how do you react to me saying? I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like a luddite. You know, I I love my gadgets. You know, <laughs> I'm, a, I, you know I'm a Gen Xer with my gadgets, but I but I like to see my doctor in person sometimes. I mean, that makes it gives me comfort somehow. Does that work against your technology, or do you think no. I'll change my attitude as I use it? No, absolutely. I mean, we have clinics uh, in the countries that we operate. We own and operate clinics where you see your our doctors physically when you need to and when you want to. Uh, and in countries where we don't operate our own clinics, we partner with clinics who uh, are already there doing a great job and you uh, can go and see them entirely at your choice. You're absolutely right. There is nothing Luddite about the way we want to choose to seek healthcare. Sometimes I like to go to a shop and buy something physically. Sometimes I like to order it and have it delivered to my home. Uh, those personal choices really matter. The problem is when you don't have that choice and you always have to go see a doctor right, who often right. is not available. Right, 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 right. And and I have to say, I mean, even with this pandemic, um, not having the pleasure of the, using the ba- Babylon Health app, I, I my doctor did, um, I guess, you know, we downgraded to using phone calls, you know, because nobody was going into the clinic because of COVID. And, and it did occur to me that why do I always have to go in? <laughs> because <laughs> half of the things that I was calling him about were just, you know, do, should I get another prescription for this or? Or, or what should I do about this? And I mean, it, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense, as you say, uh, it, as, as the world digitizes, that this is the way. I mean, I'm guessing that we're going to be walking around in a few years. You're, you're more of a futurist than I would ever be. But to, with gadgets or devices that are constantly monitoring us and telling us what we need to do, and that this kind of, that the idea of having to pick up and go somewhere so that somebody could assess us will seem archaic, right? I certainly hope so. I mean, it certainly is archaic in case of um, almost any other asset that we have. I mean, can you imagine uh, on an airplane if you're traveling and you just wait for a crisis to happen and then you react? I mean, we can foresee when an engine is going wrong. We Mm. can foresee when uh, so many other things are happening uh, uh, in our surrounding environment Nobody should really be surprised by getting stage four cancer. Uh, Most cancers, just take cancer, one of the biggest killers of humanity. Most cancers are curable if we get them very early. And many are incurable when we catch them late. Uh, And and most cancers have enough signals that we could catch them early if we were monitoring. We just don't monitor. You know, I want to come back to Babylon and uh, and and uh, I mean the your app, not not the place uh, in <laughs> from the past, but I but I have to get into your story because I, as I've told you before, off the uh, outside of this interview, I find it to, you to be an inspiration in terms of what you've done. You your story is amazing because you immigrated west, uh, but in your case, you did it alone. I mean, t- tell me about. Um, being this 16-year-old Iranian kid, 
uh, landing in London uh, in the immediate aftermath of the revolution that we had in, in Iran. Um, take me back to that time. Um, you know, anybody that immigrates, it's it's not easy. It's a hard journey. Um, and, uh, and it's the same for all of us. Uh, I was very lucky. Uh, I was born in a, a middle-class, loving, wonderful family. And leaving that family was incredibly hard uh, in the same way that it's hard for everyone. I lost my father, unfortunately, last year to COVID. And I remember that I, as I was leaving Iran, he walked with me or came with me as close to the border as he could. And and, and as he, we were leaving, I was leaving, uh, he came to hug me and the person who was going to take me away said, look, you cannot hug because people will notice uh, that you're separating so he says, what do you expect me to do to a son that I may never see again? And I said, just at best you could shake his hand. So he shook my hand and he said, you just stay well until I see you. And I remember at that time, we had no expectation. There was no mobile phone. Which border was that? Where were you? Uh, that was a border to go via Pakistan. Uh-huh. Uh, to, to, uh, uh, and so, so I left that way. And within half an hour, by the way, uh, I got caught. Uh, as somebody who was going to go away. And it was fascinating that a complete stranger who knew me uh, not at all uh, said, uh, came and intervened and, and risked his own uh, uh, life to allow this young 16-year-old to pass by uh, and, and go unharmed. And, and I learned there and then, uh, and I learned that many, many times since, that it is always the people that you love most who are always looking after you, but it's also the people you do not know at all uh-huh. that are looking after you because it is in, in, in the DNA of humanity to be kind and to look after each other. That's how we survived uh, throughout uh, millennials. And uh, so it would be so wrong of me to say, oh, well, I left on my own and I survived on my own because of all my own achievements. The reality is I was helped all the way with so many countless kind, honorable other people who just pushed me along the way and helped me uh, do well. And it's nonsense to try and claim credit for what others helped you get to. That's quite beautifully said, and I want to. I'm going to ask you about the DNA of, uh, of of humanity. I wouldn't want to overstate this, but it's interesting coming from a Persian saying <laughs> saying that because I find, sadly, I say this, I find us to be very distrustful um, and to be quite cynical sometimes about humanity. Maybe it's because of what Iranians have experienced in the last few, you know few decades. Um, but do you do you really believe that much in humanity? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, we wouldn't have been able to survive as as a species if we didn't help each other out. Uh, uh, we are a social animal. We hunt in herds and in packs. We eat together. We look after each other. I mean, you said uh, the name of my company, Babylon. The reason we chose it to call it Babylon was because all those many thousands of years ago, uh, the Babylonians had a model in which if they got ill, they stood in the middle of a square uh, that was assigned to the ill, where it was the duty of every 
person who passes by to ask you what's wrong with you and if they had experienced that problem to tell you what they did to survive. Um, so I think that um, humanity and many other, uh, by the way, species are, are in the DNA are designed to be social and to be helpful to each other. And most people are. Now, it is true that in any group, there is always the odd one out. And I had my own fair share of suffering uh, from, uh, from those people. But it is utterly wrong to generalize and say, because we hit a minority who do the wrong thing, that means everybody does the wrong thing. That would lead to a cynical, pessimistic, downbeat world. Mm. Uh, and I just refuse to be part of that. You know, I love your story, or I love your remembrance of the the guy in Pakistan who helped you out, who had no incentive or family ties or anything like that. Um, and I also really appreciate, uh, as I'm sure the people listening do, that you you are um, you keep uh, issuing disclaimers for us to not see you as some kind of hero. But and surely a lot of people, a lot of us uh, Iranians, have immigrated. But but to come alone without your parents. Um, as 16, I mean, a lot of 16-year-olds wouldn't have made the choice, you know, would have just sort of thought, I better hedge my bets and stay in, in, in Iran uh, with my family. Uh, you've said that it did teach you the ability to stand on your own two feet. Talk to me about that. Well, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell who has this concept of desirable difficulties. And like many other middle-class uh, teenagers or ch uh, children. I was born in a, a very loving, very caring family, although my family was always very open and very liberal. And uh, from much earlier age, for instance, I used to spend my summers uh, on my own uh, by the Caspian Sea with uh, friends uh, in a hotel from first day of the summer to the end of the summer, I would be there. So, uh, so that a trust that the family had in its children to grow up uh, uh, as maturely as possible obviously helped. Um, but, but I think that at the end of the day, we are all protected. And being taken out of that bubble and having to stand on your own feet um, and having to survive on your own, it's a very valuable lesson. Because what it teaches you, Jian, is that Frankly, most problems solve itself. Uh, frankly, uh, if you run into trouble, there are many, many others who are prepared to come and help you out. Therefore, there is really no point in doom and gloom and worrying about things too much. And also, as it, it's a great foundation for entrepreneurialism because you, we lost everything. I mean, I went through the kind of poverty I don't wish on anybody at some stages uh, of my uh, life. But you kind of learn that when I was at my poorest, I was as happy as I am today. Uh, and, uh, and life kind of goes on and you find happiness in things that you have. Uh, I remember my uh, girlfriend at the time, who is my wife today, mm. and I were going through a a tough patch uh, financially together. Um, and there was a time that we had, Jian, you, you wouldn't believe it, but we had 20 pounds that we left on our library. And it was Tuesday and we were waiting for getting paid again next Monday. 
And uh, a friend of ours uh, who came to our house uh, had another friend, and that friend actually took that 20 pounds. I mean, just just uh, stole it. So we had to survive from that Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever it was, Monday, uh, to the next Monday, and whatever was left in the kitchen, the pasta and the beans and whatever. And you kind of learn, well, you laugh at it, you survive it, then on Monday you cash in your check and things happen. Mm -hmm. And then you learn that, frankly, things always pass. And frankly, whatever goes wrong, it'll fix itself out through time. And and things can't get as bad. And when it was that bad, it wasn't that bad, if that makes sense. But that's a perspective you can only get if you've had some ups and downs in your life. That is that is uh, an amazing perspective. Although I'm always suspect of somebody who now has great resources saying, I was just as happy when, <laughs> when I was living in poverty. <laughs> I mean, I, like, you know, there's a, the, I think it was John Lennon. Somebody said, that was at one point John Lennon said, uh, everybody should be happy with what they have. And it was like, well, it's nice, to, you know, and my friend would always say, was well, it's nice for John Lennon to say that, but not all of us are John Lennon, you know? I, I mean, can you really say you were as happy when you were living in poverty? You know, I had other things. I had other wealth that I don't have today. So, look, I'm in my 50s now, right? So I wake up in the morning, the back hurts, the shoulder hurts, the knee hurts, right? I didn't have any of these issues, right? right. Um, I need to watch what I eat, otherwise I'll put on a little bit of belly. It didn't matter what I had, I was highly sporty. <laughs> right. Things always looked right. great, right? Right. right? I mean, so, so you know, different things come to a different way. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to say for a minute that if you're poor, you have all the opportunities and all the possibilities than if you're rich. That's just nonsense, right? Right, right. Money may not make you happy, but money will solve many of your unhappinesses. And you can buy your way or spend your way out of challenges, problems that you have. So um, uh, uh, it's a really good point you make, and I don't want to sound you have the option now to uh, like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos to go to space that you didn't have when you were in poverty <laughs> that's right but then on the other hand going to a space is not a necessity right <laughs> that's certainly true how did you teach yourself O and A levels of education I I, I want to I mean it wouldn't occur to me as a teenager to say okay well you know actually I can skip high school and teach myself these things how did you do that as a new immigrant well, again, uh, look, I was 16, right? I land in UK. I'm almost 17 now, right? Uh, by the time I arrived. Um, then I had to learn English because at school I learned French. I didn't speak any words in English. So I had to learn English. That would have taken, let's say, three months. Then all levels at the time, or GCSEs now, it's a two-year period. And then A-levels is another two years. So that's four years, let's call it four and a half with learning English and then fitting into the school calendar years. When you're 16, 17, four and a half means you go to university when you're 20, 21. It seems like ages away, right? It just (laughs) seems that that's the time from uh, you need to, most people go into university when they're 18. So at the time, or 19, so at the time it felt like I had no other choice, but I had to figure out a way of cramming it in to get my results, to be able to go to university and not lose any more 
uh, time now. <laughs> by time, I kind of figure out the year is not here or there. It doesn't really make a difference. I like how you say these things as if they're they would be logical to anybody else. Most immigrants would cut themselves to slack at sixteen. They've come alone and go. It's going to take me a couple of extra years that it takes the guy down the street in Hillingbrand to get to get to university. They wouldn't necessarily think. Well, I better teach myself. I mean, this is an interesting insight into your character and your personality. You. You're clearly ambitious. I mean, you've always, um, this is, I mean, it's entrepreneurial thinking to think as a teenager, hey, I can fast track this if I do it this way. I don't have to go into the lane that everybody's going into. Would it be true to say that this was in you early? Um, yeah. Look, I, I, I was lucky in many ways. One of the ways I was very lucky at was that my father used to <clears throat> work uh, outside of uh, the city I was bro uh, being brought up. And when, when we were little, we lived in Tehran, and my father used to build bridges, roads, stuff like that. So he would come every two to three weeks to spend a week with us and then go back uh, again. And uh, and I uh, remember going to school, like at the age of six or something, and I was really unhappy. So he came home one day and saw me very unhappy. And in a moment of kind of kindness, uh, we talked to my mama, why don't you hold him back a year? And then he goes, next year, what, what changes does it make? And I remember then that as a result, I was always a little bit older at school, a few months older than everybody else. And you can imagine when you're a few months older than everybody else, then you're always kind of the leader because sure. when you're six yeah. or seven, a few months make a huge difference. So I was always a captain of the football team, uh, the head of the class, uh, this and that. And and I think that that kind of gave me a different perspective maybe. But maybe that was also the result that I kind of, I remember my school teachers always uh, telling my parents that I was a little bit rebellion um, and uh, and different, uh, but but I I think every child is different in their own way, and I'm sure that now that I have my own children, I see them being different than um, others in their own ways. Uh, so I'm not sure how unique that was. One of the ways you're different. I mean, maybe this is what it means to be entrepreneurial is that at every step of your life, you don't just follow what you're doing in a straight line. So you get your PhD in engineering physics in 1995. While you're doing that in the 90s, you co-found a media production company for which you win a Royal Award for Young Entrepreneur of the Year. I mean, how an engineering nerd becomes an award-winning uh, person in media promotion is, <laughs> is, is quite curious to me. What, I, I, how do you explain that diversity at that, at that stage? I, I think that was uh, the result of necessity, right? I was doing my PhD. We didn't have enough money to survive while doing a PhD. One of, one of the unknown uh, realities of studying for a long period of time, including doing a PhD, is that unless there is a mom and dad who help you through it, uh, or there is a government grant, or there is some kind of scholarship, sure. then you, how do you pay for it, right? Uh, so I had to find a job or a way of financing it. I looked at jobs, frankly, Jeanne, and uh, you know it doesn't pay that much to... Uh, waiter uh, or to work in a mcdonald's or whatever else it is so you do the math and say well actually if i did this one and this worked it pays better so we created these media events that then turned into that company and it just paid 
better and uh, allowed us to uh, for me to do my PhD. I did it with then my girlfriend, who, as I said, is now my wife, for her to do her studies. It worked for us. Now, it is also true that when you do your PhD or you're doing your studying, there's quite a lot of wasted time. Uh, when we are students, we don't remember it. Uh, but but if you put that wasted time to good use, you know you have time to do both. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Actually, I was going to ask you later about that. But but I mean, in, in terms of all that you've accomplished, I, I assume you're a very organized person. Have you always been very? Um, particular about making sure you get up at a certain time and managing your schedule and getting the right amount of sleep and and just sort of um, multitasking, all of that that we would expect from someone like you? I'm glad we're doing this uh, conversation in English because my mother still doesn't speak uh, much English. Uh, But if she did hear you, she would laugh. Uh, (laughs) 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 Because I'm I'm not... uh, I mean, I'm, I have all my challenges as anybody else, right? Some days I'm very organized and my uh, s- sometimes my kids think that I'm OCD in the way I clean after myself and, and, uh, and make my bed every morning. And sometimes I'm not as good as I should be. So pretty average in that part. You go into the financial world after the 1990s, first as, a, as an investment banker, then as a CEO. You work at all kinds of famous financial institutions, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs. What was that period about for you? Presumably, you could be a successful engineer. You could have become a professor of engineering. What seduced you into the corporate world? It's a really good question. And I think it has partly it had to do this desire of, that every immigrant has to kind of somehow becoming an insider. So I remember when I sold my company and I found a a glimpse into the investment banking world. And remember, this is mid-90s. And investment bankers wore better suits, kind of dressed better, talked better. And I just did the math. And so for every minute they spent with me, they made infinitely more money than I did building my company per hour. And I just thought, well, I mean, why is it they do that I can't do? So I've become an investment banker too. And I, I knew nothing about it. And remember, I don't have any family members at the time who were investment bankers, no friends who were there. So you're trying to read about it all the time. And I, um, I remember at the time there was a book by uh, Lewis um, called uh, Liar's Poker, I think. And, um, and I remember reading that and then having a final interview at Goldman Sachs uh, with uh, Cohen, who at the time was the head of uh, uh, commodity trading, who then eventually became uh, the president of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he told me that, son, you better go to investment uh, banking side rather than, rather than the trading side. And that's kind of how I started kind of differentiating uh, which one is which. I ended up there. And it wasn't for me. I mean, it's it's important to say that uh, I wasn't the greatest of bankers. I mean, you did I pretty well. Did a, you did pretty well. Yeah, and I got promoted really fast, and I went from one to the other. But but I tell you, I was never really happy as an investment banker. Not because there is anything wrong with investment banking. I'm not one of these people who say. Uh, or bankers are bad, or this or that, or it's all about money and I don't like that. It was nothing to do with any of this. It wasn't for me because I wanted to build things. And investment banking, like management consultancy, it's all about projects. You, you do your best for a short period of time, you serve your client's project, and then you move on to the next thing. 
And I always found that in almost every project, I wanted to be on the client side. And because I was entrepreneurial, entrepreneurs really liked me. And I used to serve them in whichever bank I was. And, and I always used to, like, as soon as the work was finished, go and spend time with them. We would have dinners together. And we were always plotting, how can we set up something together? And, uh, and that's, that was the source of my unhappiness. It was a great job, but it wasn't my great job. And I always tell the younger people, never look at what works well for somebody else. Find what it is that is in your nature that you will enjoy and you can be passionate about. And then you will do really well. I mean, because I really never was that passionate about banking, I did well because I got lucky and I did well and I had uh, this thing that clients liked me. But it wasn't really for me. And when I look at it now, if I started becoming an entrepreneur earlier, probably would have been better for me than kind of sticking it out. Let, let me ask you about entrepreneurship. Uh, but but first, just just one thing you said there that I thought was was quite interesting. That You didn't know anything about investment banking. You went into it. Are you someone who believes... I mean, not to be ridiculous, you've already stated that you understand that there are class dimensions to to moving up in social status, et cetera, that, that there's impediments that people can have. There's no, we know that there isn't a equality of outset. But but are you someone who believes, we had a gentleman on named Farhad Kashani, who has been a long time, he's written management books and CEO, and you know, he was saying, I really think that for the most part, anyone can do anything if they work hard enough and really put, you invest in it. They, you know, I, I'm ready to take a minimum wage job anywhere and I, I know I can work myself up to VP, which he's done a few times. Are you someone who believes that's true? I think up to a limit. There is only so much any of us can cover uh, in any period of time, so much distance any of us can cover. So really it depends where you start and how far you're going to go, right? So everybody talks about uh, how successful, let's just take anyone. Uh, you mentioned Jeff Bezos. Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is also successful, Mark Zuckerberg is. Yes. But we must remember they were born in incredibly successful companies. They were born with a set of genetics that make them super smart. I mean, uh, Jeff is particularly super smart. Uh, they were uh, then got into uh, naturally into jobs that placed them in. Uh, uh, situations where they could take advantage, for instance, in his case, see the growth and the advance of the internet at the right time in the right place, and then therefore succeed, right? There is a reason why almost every mini computer or uh, uh, personal computer CEO or entrepreneur was born in 1955, right? Uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, they were all born in 1950. And the reason for that was that by the time uh, personal computers were invented, they were not either too young or too old to take advantage of it, right? And and so where you are, how lucky you get, this all play a role. Imagine if I was born to a, uh, or imagine if the person you're mentioning was born to a, a illiterate family who was striving, for instance, in a villa- in a war-torn village yeah. in Afghanistan to make ends meet. Yeah. And you, you don't have any of the opportunities we yeah. had. So therefore, your starting point would have been far behind. So when I'm interviewing people, when I'm trying to hire people in Babylon or in any of my other uh, functions, I never ask them about what they achieved. 
I always ask them about the story of their life because that gives me a glimpse of ah. the distance they covered ah. as opposed to where they are right now. It's irrelevant where you're right now because that's all about where you start. Imagine you and I do a race, a 10-kilometer race. I start at the ninth kilometer. You start at the first kilometer. The fact that I finished the 10th kilometer faster than you is irrelevant. The question is how many kilometers did you cover oh, when right. I did that one? Right. You know, I love, what the, I love that answer because... Uh, it's true that with someone like Jeff Bezos, the narrative is you know, we always see that picture of him in that little room where how Amazon started. You know, the narrative is a guy who had nothing, who starts with a little envelope, you know, suddenly becomes the the CEO of the, the most richest man in the world, you know. And and what you've just said in terms of laying out um, the the social and economic uh, uh, pedagogical structures of how these where these people come from makes a difference. Of course, it makes a difference. Um, and yet, at the same time, I mean, you you've probably hired people who you have a sense um, are just ready to work really hard, haven't you? Or or is that you get that from the life story? I am a big believer that you hire people who have covered a long distance in their lives, that that they've done something that has been exceptional, and it doesn't have to be in the same thing. So. Um, for instance, one of the best people I hired uh, has been an athlete, uh, right? Uh, and you just know if this person kind of had to wake up at 5 a.m. Right, every morning right. as a kid uh, to swim uh, for two hours or three hours before going to school, uh, there, is, there is a DNA of that person that is all about determination, yes. about uh, succeeding. So you're looking for those trait of being exceptional, of, of giving it all. But that doesn't mean uh, that uh, somebody else who's a lousy athlete, you shouldn't hire them because they probably are exceptional in something else. You need to find what it is that is exceptional about every person and then help them to double down on it as opposed to waste their time on something else. I don't know if, Jean, you ever came across a 19th century um essay by by i think by a guy called hartley which was about which was called the animal school did you did you ever come across what's it that? called the animal what's it called the animal school no, and, it, and no. it basically talks about this school that tried to get every animal to do great at everything and the short of it is that for instance the eagle wanted to fly to the top of the tree and he said no you have to climb and the duck wanted to swim and it says no you have to run and as a result, every one of these animals ended up doing really badly. <laughs> and, and that's what we do in our society, right? We say to everybody, you have to be great at everything. I mean, look at corporations, right? They do their 360 reviews of people. And then they say, okay, here is your point of ex uh, good, uh, but now let me tell you what you have to improve on. I mean, it's like, I don't know, I love uh, watching soccer. I mean, who tells a goalkeeper you need to go and score a goal? And because you can't score enough goals, you're a bad bad football player. I mean, it's just absurd what we do to people. And then we wonder why so many people are suffering from lack of self-esteem and not doing well and having all these challenges. It's because it's not because they're bad. It's because often they're surrounded by people who are not very good. There's something else too, though, when you talk about life story. And when I said at the beginning of the interview that I find you really inspiring, this was the thing that you've talked about that I found the most inspiring. You've made the case for the importance of perseverance. And 
Um, that's got to be part of when you understand somebody's life story. You understand whether they've, uh, how much they've persisted or persevered. Can you, can you give us an example from your own life or your career where perseverance would have made the difference between you succumbing or surmounting an obstacle to achieve the success you've had? Almost everything, John. There is no such thing in life, in my view, that you achieve by by just getting lucky and achieving it. It's it's very rare. And even if you do, even if you win the lottery, uh, you look at most lottery winners, they pretty soon lose everything they got, right? Because, or they go back to the same level of happiness they had before. Because if you haven't worked for it and if you haven't persevered for it, you don't even know how to keep it, right? Uh, to me, anything you do takes a long time for you to learn, and it never comes because you did it and got it right the first time. It comes because you just kept at it and made it better and better. And people talk about overnight success stories. Uh, we talked about Zuckerberg, right? But how he came up with uh, Facebook overnight, and it was phenomenal success. And what is one of the rare examples of something happening really fast. Mm. But even then, can you imagine if you only stuck with Facebook and didn't do anything else? I mean, it would be a complete disaster today. I mean, the genius of Zuckerberg is the fact that he is constantly aware that he needs to improve and do better. And therefore, kind of WhatsApp and Instagram and everything else that uh, Facebook is invested in and, and is developing. He's not blockbuster video. Right. right. Or or Motorola phone. You remember Lazaridis <laughs> right, right, from right. Canada, right? I mean, he right. would just refuse to improve it or uh, in the face of things changing like so openly in front of him. And he was a true genius uh, if you look at his life story. What was the precipitant, um, Alijan, for, for, for going into the health space? So we've established you were this engineer, the PhD, the, then the, the investment banking. I mean, the two companies that have made you famous, and the, the one, of course, that is very successful now project is Babylon Health. But the one in 2004, Circle Health, was the first private company to run a, a UK national health service hospital. What was the precipitant? Why, why did you want to go into the health space? So, uh, I often like kind of have a smile when people kind of, I read about other people when they answer that kind of questions. And often they always have some elaborate reason how uh, they ended up where they ended up with. I mean, we've now recently seen a few of our billionaires who are going to a space and there is always a story of how they always wanted to do it as a child. <laughs> uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is, it was sheer pure coincidence, right? I was, I, I had my first daughter, um, and I uh, had two weeks of paternity leave, and I went to Goldman to my boss, and uh, said to my uh, boss at the time that look up, Scott, I'm going to quit, I'm, I'm leaving, uh, because I want to be a full time dad, and uh, and he thought I was mad, but I thought that look, I really. It's late in life. I'm having a child, and I want to give it everything. And six months of Gaga Google later, I just thought this is this is just not, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. So uh, I I moved on. Uh, but, but but at that period of time, I had time to do uh, some surgery on my knee that I had to do because I used to do a lot of sports and I had a consistent problem with my knee. And uh, and, and I just. Uh, Jean, so some of the best private hospitals in the UK, in London, that were doing my 
I was doing my knee and I thought, surely if this is the best private hospital out there, I could do better hospitals than that. So I started building a chain of hospitals circle. Uh, I mean, our very first hospital, for instance, we said, well, why should a hospital look so awful? So I hired Norman Foster to design it. Uh, the very first hospital we built won the award for the best public s- uh, space globally. Uh, we said, why should the food of a hospital be so rubbish? So we hired a Michelin star chef to deliver it. We said, why should they, uh, to cook it, not just to design it, but to actually work there and cook it every day. And then uh, we said, why should the service be so awful? We call it hospital. Why couldn't a hospital win the service with hospitality? So we hired uh, the team from the uh, hotel, the five-star hotel, who used to every year win the best hospitality awards uh, in UK. And uh, two years later, we beat them in it and our hospital circle uh, won the best hospitality award for the two year uh, in a row, first time a hospital ever did it, and so on. So NHS gave us a hospital because we were already doing really well, and they had to shut down a hospital and say, ha. They gave it to us to see whether we can make it work, which, which we did, that it did very well while I was there. Unfortunately, two years after I left Circle, uh, it, it kind of uh, didn't do as well and was sent back, was given back. But but while we were there, it did phenomenally well. So, so that's uh, and Circle did well. I mean, today Circle is uh, the uh, largest hospital group in UK, and it was just actually sold for a billion pounds to uh, Centene, the US uh, Insurance Corporation. Um, but it was pure accident. It was just just seeing a problem that could have been done better and going to solve. And the reason I'm saying that is so that for all those other people who are listening. You don't need to have a massive time of inspiration. We don't need to kind of think about what's the best thing we could do. Is you just need to see problems that you know you can solve, and you need to see something that you say, "Look, I could, I I could do with a better solution than this for myself." So why don't I? But that said, you could have chosen an easier feel like I grew up in England I were you know it was drilled into me from when I was a kid the importance of the NHS that's a that's a sacred cow you know it's like don't mess with the National Health Service Absolutely. not that you necessarily did and I don't want to get into the private public debate but how how do you uh, because you must have a way of coping at this point how do you deal with criticism when when whether it's Circle Health or Babylon or uh, or somebody writing an article about your your taskmaster in the office your difficulty how, how do you deal with these kinds of um, um, criticisms about public and private healthcare. Do you care about that stuff? Are you a sensitive Persian like many of us, or can you let it roll off your back? What What does it do for you? No, I look. I I, I let it roll off my back more often than you think, and I don't read much about that kind of stuff a lot either. Because um, Tony Blair once said, and I think he's very right. And I actually talked to him once. I met him about this. He he doesn't even read articles about him because at the end of the day, you know that because you were in the industry. Uh, journalists need to have a story. They're storytellers, sure. and sometimes the story is about how good you are. But once everybody established how brilliant you are, then the question becomes: Well, there's no story in that anymore. So right. somebody needs to find the story about how bad you are. Well, the negative right? ones get more clicks. That's certainly what, uh, <laughs> exactly. what I've seen out there. And yeah, they get more clicks, yeah. and I mean I. I once, uh, there was a really unfair story about me 
in in one of the uh, journals, and I called a very good friend of mine who was the CEO of a major publication. So, uh, and I just said, look, you know it's rubbish. I know it's rubbish. And he said, I know, but look, it's it, what am I going to do, right? The, if we can't pay these journalists enough anymore because all our publications are not making as much money. So we hire a whole bunch of very young people who are not that experienced and we can't pay them much. So therefore we can give them a platform for them to make their name and everybody's trying to make their names. And, and it's true when you look at it from somebody else's point of view and you say, if I was a journalist, what would I do, right? I'm not going to kind of constantly follow what everybody else says. I have to find my own little story. And sometimes those stories are fair. Sometimes they're utterly unfair. And one thing I learned, and, I'm, and you had your fair share of it too, yep. is, that, is that you can't believe everything you read. Uh, and most people that I know who, when I read about, I sometimes read what I can't believe is the person that I know uh, about. But it is what it is. You just have to accept it. And uh, it's been true since time immemorial, right? Uh, it has always been that, uh, the case that uh, I think uh, it was at Lincoln that famously said, you can make some of the people happy uh, all of the time and all of the people happy some of the time, but you can never make the opposite happy of that. But yeah, yes, like, like oh, said, the opposite order. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, there at the opposite end of the spectrum, you are trumpeted as well, uh, as you know. I mean, that there, if you Google your name right now, there's a number of uh, articles talking about how successful you are and, and being added to this Sunday Times rich list uh, of uh, of the top people in the UK. I, d what does that mean? to you not much i mean seriously uh, i mean these lists come and these lists go i've been incredibly lucky to have uh, all the money i need uh, but so what right i mean so what does that mean but what about the guy who wanted to be the insider i mean is there a little bit of satisfaction when you look at the list and there are a bunch of old English guys and you're in the midst of them or something? I mean, does that help? Um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would lie to say there is not some satisfaction, although these lists are, uh, first of all, uh, they could also be a lot of trouble. Uh, like uh, the number of people who chase you for things that are just uh, irrelevant uh, to you and uh, the amount of time you have to waste uh, right, right. over like undoing things so so i mean everything being equal there is there is something in not being in any of these lists that are valuable uh and and it was a complete surprise to me frankly i found out about it the day it was published uh, and if i had a way about to do away with it uh, it would be good to not not have these things but you know uh yeah i i i think it matters um I remember thinking that I wish my father was alive because mm. it's not so much about you. It's about everything else that he represents. It represents yeah. it can be done. It represents yeah. that all the things that your parents have gone through uh, mean something. Yeah. And we, we were hoping our kids will never find out. I mean, my wife and I were incredibly careful so that the kids stay hungry. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't have money just because one minute somebody finds out and then you're in a list. Uh, you have it, you build it through time bit by bit. And it's super important as you're bringing up children that they are not having this sense that, look, I just don't have to do anything. Everything's okay for me until as long as I live, if, if, if things go well. 
so um so I don't know. I mean, it's a long-winded answer. No, it. it's a good answer. I, I totally get the thing about the dad, by the way. The only person I ever, uh, of the big paychecks I've, I've made in my life, the only person that I ever wa- told or wanted to tell was my late father. There's some some kind of desire for him to feel <laughs> feel good about, you know, uh, that. And and, um, and I'm so sorry to hear about your, your dad last year. Was he in Iran? He was. He was, unfortunately, uh, quote, COVID, uh, in the very first wave of the disease coming in when there was very little idea of how to deal with it. And therefore, he ended up in a hospital in Tehran and they almost did the uh, textbook of everything we know that shouldn't happen oh, now. No. Um, and uh, I mean, he was he was 93, but he was a very healthy uh, 93-year-old. Um, so... Uh, and there isn't, and I'm sure it's the same with you, Jean. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't shed a quiet tear for the fact that you no, lost your dad. No, I mean, yeah, these yes. are people that we are not supposed to lose. These are people yeah. that uh, we've known from the day we were born. And he was uh, uh, not just my father. He was also my best friend. Uh, he was my uh, hero in many ways. Uh, he was somebody who went to jail uh, for his belief in humanity and in social justice. Uh, when he was younger, he was somebody who spent all of his life just focusing on his good name. And I, and when he died, I mean, we had so many people on a Zoom uh, ceremony for him. If we just lost count of uh, and uh, how many people had how many good memories of them. So, so you're absolutely right. Making these people proud of what they've done was the bit that mattered most. Which I'm sure he, I mean, back to that handshake at the Pakistani border and, and you're 16 years old. I mean, I'm sure he, uh, he he was tremendously proud of all that you've accomplished. You know, it's really interesting. He was proud before we have accomplished anything, right? Because it's in the same way, I don't know if you have um, any kids, I do. In the same way that you stay very proud when they take their first step and then when they can run and then when they win their first race, it really doesn't matter uh, where they are in that journey. What matters is that the first accomplishment, if you love them, you show them their love and you show them that how much you care for their success. And he always did. He was very, very good at it. You know, I'm so grateful for the time you've given us. I've only got a, a question, one or two questions left, and I, I wanted to actually ask you about um, come back to the kid who came here as a, as an Iranian refugee. I mean, it's a tale that you know we've been talking. The subtext of this interview has become about how the media, you know, sensationalizes things, and and it's funny to see the headlines about you because they're always like the refugee kid who became a billionaire, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, if, as if that just is, you know, that's the order, right? You know, um, but I do wonder how often you tap into your, and I, and you know, this program is about Iranian identity to a certain extent, and the stories we tell each other, how often you do tap into your own background as an Iranian and that journey you took to come to, to the West uh, as an inspiration somehow for all that you do and are. So... I am not, and and saying that to you on a podcast about Iranians, it's 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 an awful thing probably to say. But I'm not very big about nationalism and your origin as an individual. I'm I'm a huge believer that human beings are human beings, and they all 
uh, have the same kind of desires and beliefs. And one of the things that going through the journey I went through, and I'm sure you identify with that, is that whether I was an insider or an outsider, whether I was young or I'm much older now, whether I had no money and I have uh, some now, it really didn't matter. What I found in that journey is whoever I was with, people, young, old, rich, poor, uh, insiders, outsiders, immigrants, natives, they all have the same desires, the same needs. We just have different opportunities. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the bit that really matters. Uh, believe me, a Chinese mother loved their children as much as an Iranian mother, as much as a Canadian mother, uh, or father, right? So I, I think, uh, it wasn't so much about the fact that I came from Iran. It was more the fact that I came from a wonderful family who gave me a huge grounding. And that family could have existed in any country in the world. And it wasn't just the fact that I was an Iranian refugee. It was just the fact that I was a refugee. And that refugee could be from Somali, from Afghanistan, from anywhere else, right? Uh, and it wasn't the fact that I love humanity because I come from the East. Many of the fantastic friends I have from the West uh, have beautiful humanitarian values to them. So does that make sense? It it does. I mean, I'm tempted to say the Chinese mother who loves their kids doesn't make the same level of as as the Persian mother, but But but, but everything else makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but they make damn good like uh, the duck soup. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, are you? I mean, if if you, given your prominence and the fact that people know that you are Iranian, are you courted by Iranian groups and political parties and these kind of things to get involved in the politics of Iran and to make statements, uh, or or do you are you are you able to stay away? No, from that? I I avoid politics in every country. I mean, I understand people have their. Uh, views and their beliefs, and what I found is uh, is that there isn't a set of beliefs of views that is hundred percent right all the time, every time. Uh, and I think that we spend far too much time. And uh, you living in Canada, just next door to United States, you can see it uh, next door to you in the U.S. now. Um, uh, playing itself uh, to an extreme, we spend far too much time finding the differences between each other and uh, and fighting over those differences. Well, those are all just a matter of context. So let's just depoliticize that from the context of Iran. If you take it to the context of United States, for instance, and you take a Democrat uh, on the left of the Democratic Party and a uh, Republican on the right of the yeah, party, a yeah. supporter of Trump, and you take them both into situation where they have to go to war. I don't know, take them back in the 70s when they say if they were prisoners of war in Vietnam, it would have become irrelevant. There were two American prisoners of war in Vietnam fighting side by side or standing side by side. And the same is true about anything else. It has so much to do with context. And I think we do much better as humanity if we find areas in which that we have in common. Having said that, there are crimes that humans commit that are just criminal or inhuman and are in unforgivable and nobody should stay quiet about those either. I've really in, enjoyed talking to you. A final question. I mean, uh, you, there's so much you've said in this uh, interview that, that I feel like I should find in a book uh, of, of inspiration. But, uh, but given your, what you've described as your ups and downs and this perspective that comes from that to be a, uh, 
um, you know, on the lists that you're on now and, and where you've been before that. Uh, what would you say? And this is I, I, I forgive me because I know it's not an, 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 a question that has any empirical answer. But but what's what comes to mind if I were to ask you, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about what makes a good life? Um, I, I think there are two, three things that give make anything a good life. First is you have to have the basics right, right? The, the hygiene, you have to be healthy. You have to have enough money not to be starving, all of those things. Without any of those, it's very hard to have a good life, right? I mean, if you have a degenerating disease that is making it, giving you pain every single day, uh, it's very hard to say, look, I have happiness, right? Yeah. So, so you got to get the, the, the basics, yeah. the hygiene factor, yes. right? Let's assume that, Outs- yeah. Uh, let's assume that. Outside that, I think it's all about, do you have something that inspires you every day? And are you surrounded by people that you love being around? Um, and, and I think if you get these two right, and both of those are things you could do something about. Uh, while in the first uh, instance, it's harder to do something about the hygiene if things are wrong. It's hard to fix. It. But, but those things are, we all can find something that, that inspires us and we aspire towards. And we can all avoid the people who make us feel miserable, right? I mean, it goes back to one of the other questions you said, what about all the detractors? Well, learn from what they say, because often when somebody's detracting, they have something right that you mm. just are oblivion to. So you have to hear it out and try and fix it. But on the other hand, if they're negative people, just avoid them. Like, I mean, I mean, so I'm a big believer in avoiding negativity, yes. focusing on the positive, and, f- and, and keep going and not worrying too much if things go wrong, uh, because you can fix them. And if you can't fix them, then, you know, you learn from them and then start again, if that makes sense. Dr. Ali Parsa. I thank you for the time. I thank you for the education and the inspiration. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And I thank you for your kindness in having me both on and in being such a wonderful questioner and listener. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Ali Parsa, a PhD in engineering physics and entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Babylon Health. We reached Dr. Ali Parsa in London, England today. This is a special themed episode of Rook, the second of three we are bringing you this month. This one entitled The Tech Builders. Uh, On Thursdays, we have new editions of the Contemporary History of Iran. We hope you check that out. And for all things Rook, including our previous episodes, our guests, our Rook funnies, our videos, etc., it's all at rookmedia.com. If you haven't checked out our website, do so, rookmedia.com. It's also where you can find uh, how to become a patron of the show, support us, or become a sponsor. We appreciate that. rookmedia.com. You know, there's no shortage of Iranians who have overcome adversity to find tremendous success in the world. And in some cases, those folks who've built their story with intellect, hard work, determination, and independence. But even in that category, 
My second feature guest today is extraordinary in terms of where he came from, what he has accomplished, and how he's giving back to the world. Hadi Partovi is an Iranian-American tech entrepreneur, investor, CEO, and co-founder of the education nonprofit Code.org. It is an organization that advocates computer science training for young people worldwide and provides coding curriculum for schools. Hadi was born in Tehran and spent a childhood taking cover from the Iran-Iraq war. As an escape from their circumstances, Hadi and his twin brother Ali taught themselves to code with their Commodore 64 computer at home. This was, you might say, a prophetic beginning to what would become a highly successful career in technology. After immigrating to the United States, Hadi spent his summers working as a software engineer to help pay his way through high school and college. With all the educational boxes checked off, he obtained his bachelor and master's degree in computer science from Harvard University. Hadi pursued his career in technology, starting at Microsoft, where he rose into the executive ranks. As an entrepreneur, he was on the founding teams of Tell Me and I Like, and as an angel investor and startup advisor, Hadi was an early investor in a few little companies entitled Facebook, Uber, Dropbox, Airbnb, Indiegogo, and more. Right now, the CEO of Code.org, Hadi Partovi, joins me from Seattle, Washington. Hello, sir. Hello, thank you, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be joining you, and thank you for that extremely generous introduction. Uh, I should add, by the way, that my twin brother shares almost half of the bio that you said He's an identical twin brother and is also true about him as well. Uh, I want to make sure he gets equal credit for things we've both done either together or life stories we've shared. I appreciate the shout out to Ali and I'm going to ask you about him because that in itself is remarkable, the way you guys, the trajectory of your lives and the parallels. Um, Let me just start off with, I mean, you recently were invited to meet with President Biden about cybersecurity and technology. And I've seen pictures of you, Hadi, with uh, President Obama as well. Um, What is it like to be an Iranian kid who fled after the revolution and is now basically on speed dial, apparently, with the with the White House? Uh, Well, first of all, I wouldn't characterize my relationship with the White House as being on speed dial, Uh, but it it has been really remarkable and unique. I'm not sure the the presidents or White House staffers I've met met with have recognized how unique it is for me and how I feel to be in that position, Uh, because it's both a position of privilege and honor, but it's also, you know, as an Iranian, we know in our history, a lot of things that have happened to our country have happened because of actions by you know, American administrations. So I have mixed feelings each time I, I have one of these kinds of encounters. Uh, but really what it reminds me and makes me think of is, I feel so fortunate to live a life that is consequential enough uh, to be relevant enough to be, to be invited to the White House uh, on numerous occasions. Uh, and it also reminds me that talent is everywhere and opportunity is not. Uh, you know, if I had spent my whole life growing up in Iran, I wouldn't have managed to have the opportunities that I have, uh, thanks to having immigrated to the United States at the time that I did. And I think about all the students and children all over the world that are uh, that are talented and ambitious, but don't have the ability to, to, to tap into opportunity the way that I did. What, what did you make of Biden? I thought he was very likable. He was very much like what we see on on television or, or you know, when you see examples of him. Um, you know, I spoke about the importance of education and he immediately made a little uh, joke about 
watching his, I think, granddaughter or, or, or grandchildren with technology and how much easier it is for them and how, how natural it is their world and how important it is to make sure that every kid gets basically the, a level of education that he lacked, you know, when he was young uh, in terms of not just how to play with technology, but to understand it better. You know, speaking of tech heads, I feel like it's, um, uh, in a way, it's auspicious timing to speak to you because, or, or fortuitous timing. And it, it's the 10-year anniversary right now of Code.org, your uh, ed- educational nonprofit. And not coincidentally, the 10-year anniversary of the death of Steve Jobs. Um, t- tell me about the connection and how he inspired you. Sure. Um, it's By the way, it's not the 10-year anniversary of me starting code.org is the 10-year anniversary of me deciding to start code.org ah okay okay because it took it took i think a few months more almost eight months more for me to actually create an organization i started laying the groundwork Uh, but you know the day that steve jobs died was really meaningful to me he had been a almost lifelong role model as just a person i looked up to like what an incredible mind what a visionary he had lots of issues and problems but who doesn't but the, the way he impacted the world of technology and really just the entire world in such a short life was important. And meanwhile, I had always wanted to impact education. And the way I wanted to start was creating a video about the greatest of the greats in technology talking about the importance of computer science. Uh, and when Steve Jobs died, a number of things happened. First, I just thought of my own mortality. This guy was 16 years older than me. What's my mark going to be in 16 years? And then I wanted him to be in my video <laughs> and that wasn't an option anymore. And I was, and I, on a personal level, I missed him. But then what really kicked in is I saw this video about the think different campaign. And it was a video that he narrated talking about basically the video was dedicated to the crazy ones, the people who have the vision to change the world and the, the, the craziness really to try to make an impact. And, you know, his message was, some people might think they change the world, might think that they're crazy, but we think because they're crazy, they can change the world. And I remember thinking, am I crazy enough to actually start something with the vision of changing global education? It just seemed like a kind of an incredible thing to aim for. And I had for years wanted to, but I was scared. I was scared of failure. And I'd had enough success in my tech career to embark on an education career to change you know, the curriculum of public education, uh, it was a natural possibility of failing. And I just decided, screw it. If like this guy, you know, has changed the world, nobody told him that he can or can't. He just decided to. By the way, uh, there's, there's there's poetry in the sense that you were, or you have been for, uh, for at least up until, you know, that point anyway, for most of your life, the, the Microsoft guy, not the, the Apple guy, right? <laughs> so yes. the love or the appreciation or, and the celebration of Steve Jobs is coming from the other side of the fence, which is, um, which I thought was interesting when I heard that story. Um, wh- why, why education? You know, I... Uh, it's not it's not abnormal for someone who's been very successful and someone who's a, an angel investor or or you know has that kind of clout to give back you know there's charities there's foundations um, you've made your life and I don't want you to uh, be modest about this because I think it's a beautiful thing you've you've made your life changing education I mean that's become your goal now for the last 10 years as opposed to um, being a businessman I suppose uh, in the traditional sense uh, why why is, has that been such so important to you that's a great question and the answer is very personal um, and you know I've been 
lucky to have become successful enough as a businessman that I, first of all, have the chance to have this focus. Uh, and I'm still part-timing it as a businessman, uh, but my full-time work is, is on education. And the reason is my father, Firuz Partovi, which uh, many older Iranians may know him. Uh, he was the first professor at Sharif University, uh, and he basically hired the entire teaching staff of Sharif, which back then was called Aryameh, uh, and he ran the physics department. So he basically, he had already dedicated his life to education. And so being the, the son of a, a physics professor and my dad and a computer scientist and my mom, uh, you know, like all Iranians have a sense of the importance of education, but having a father who basically helped create a university uh, gave me an extra dosage of, of really valuing education. And, you know, so many Iranian families left Iran in 1979 at the time of the revolution, and my extended family all left. People have often asked me, why did you stay? Uh, and I was six years old, so it wasn't my choice, but we stayed because my father believed that the university and the education system should stay strong mm. during a time of upheaval. And it was a major sacrifice, which my mom was not at all supportive of, to be honest. Uh, and there were lots of arguments like, Berin as in, as in, like, let's leave, it's mm -hmm. dangerous, it's, mm -hmm. it's dangerous for our children. And my dad wanted to, to help Iran's education system. And so that left a very strong sense in me about the importance of education. And my success, uh, has come really from my education, whether it was the the informal education from my parents or the formal education I, I got by going to Harvard, the opportunities that I've had that have opened up to me because of my education are not available to most students. And the, the reality is even the best educated people in the world usually don't get a chance to learn computer science because it's not offered in their schools. So you could go to the best private school and then graduate from Oxford and never take a class in computer science because it's not on the menu. Uh, the vast majority of schools in the world don't teach computer science. Let me stop you there because, I, first of all, I want to get into the, the story, and I love that you brought in your, your father and your parents uh, because they're obviously such a significant part of of who and what you've become. But I just want to understand the terms. And forgive me for like a, a naive question. As I often say, treat me like a six-year-old on this one. But what what is computer science? I mean, in other words, why should every kid be taught it? And how is it different from like knowing how to use a computer? Is that computer science? Or is is do I have to know how to program a computer or something? That's a really great question. To, to make it very simple, learning computer science goes beyond learning how to use technology. It means learning how technology is created, how to create it, and to understand its societal impacts at a deeper level as a result. So learning how it works and how to make it yourself. Uh, and technology in this digital world is very broad. There's all these things from computer programming, making an app, making a website, machine learning, robotics. These are all cryptography networks. They're all different aspects of digital technology. We use these things in our daily lives. So when you use an app, you know somebody made an app, but you don't know how it works on the inside. And the reason students should learn this, there's multiple reasons. One is just to know how the world works. Everybody in the audience that, that is listening to this probably learned how the digestive system works or how photosynthesis works even if you don't decide to become a doctor or a botanist mm -hmm. you know photosynthesis helps make plants make sugar from light and that's how fruits grow and so on 
It's not because you want to get a job in it. It's just to be well educated. And in today's world, understanding how an algorithm works or how an app works or what is machine learning, uh, it's not just because you could get one of the highest paying jobs. It's because even if you want to become a doctor, the future of medicine is being changed by these mm. things. If you want to become a farmer, the future of farming is being changed by these things. There's really not any sub subject or field of study or industry that isn't being changed by technology. And so if you're not... Sorry, sorry, explain that to me. If you're a farmer or, or a guitarist or a plumber, why, why does knowing how to make the computer, why is that important? In the, in the case of a farmer, farming is moving to self-driving tractors and drones monitoring the fields. And the farmers of tomorrow aren't going to be driving their tractor trailers. They're going to be actually coding them to say, you know, this is the area of the field and this is how the drone needs to monitor the crops. And people are making the tools easy enough to learn, but I guarantee you a student who learned ninth grade computer science will be a better farmer dealing with that. Hmm. And in fact, if you ask today's farmers, not just the farmers of the future, today's farmers in the United States, their top challenge is that the tractor technology they deal with is so complicated, they need to, they need to download patches and security updates, just like you and I need to download on our computers. And, and managing the software patching of their farming equipment is something that is uh, scary to them, just like managing your own computer might be scary. And so that, that is a very obvious example. Uh, if you're a guitarist, the future of promoting your music is right. changing to be digital. Right. Learning how to make your own website and promote it is going to be relevant. Right. But even the future of how you create the music is increasingly sort of not just playing on an analog device. There's... There's a lot of digital tools. Um, we are increasingly digital citizens, and uh, I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to become an expert. Not you know, everybody doesn't need to become a surgeon. But having the ninth grade biology level of understanding of what is right. even going on there right. is something that I think is important. And and just before we leave it and get to your story, uh, you started something called Code.org. That's the organization. And then there was the Hour of Code. What is the Hour of Code that has become, um, uh, has grown tremendously in the last 10 years? That's a wonderful question to ask about the difference. So Code.org is an organization, a nonprofit founded with the vision that every student in every school should learn computer science. But the problem is, why the number one reason schools don't teach computer science isn't because they're against it. It's they don't even understand it. They don't know what it is and they're scared of it because the, the adults are scared of it. They're like, I don't know what it is. I didn't learn that when I was young. I don't know which kids like that's probably for the geniuses and I can't teach it. You know, that's just their impression. Uh, and we needed a way to change the stereotype, to change, change the dialogue so people realize I can teach it my kids can learn it and they're going to enjoy it more than they enjoy math class. And one hour is enough to get that message across. If any teacher in any city or country tries just one hour of coding with the right tools or curriculum, they'll realize that seven-year-old girls and boys love it. And they, as a teacher, suddenly feel like, wow, I just taught something I never learned in my classroom. So we created this campaign, this grassroots campaign, The Hour of Code. Uh, and it's that isn't just a campaign for code.org. Anybody who cares about technical education can get behind it. And it's a it's really become almost like an Earth Day in schools in that schools, hundreds of thousands of schools all across the world 
uh, celebrate something called Computer Science Education Week, and then do one hour of coding, basically to, to plant a seed of change. Uh, and what ends up happening is after one hour, the kids say, can we do that again tomorrow or next week? And the teachers are like, yeah, we have to do that. We can't say no to learning. Kids don't come in and say, can we do math again tomorrow? That's not something anybody asks hmm. for, really. They do ask for computer science because they enjoy it because of the creativity. And so that is, has become our number one agent of change in schools. Okay, I want to come back to technology and, and, and ask a couple of philosophical questions around technology before we end off. But um, let me pick up on this, this idea of who you are. Uh, I'm going to ask you in a moment about growing up in Tehran, but um, uh, I just think you, you know, you're doing so much that, that kids today have to relate to. And I think, okay, then you have to relate to the kids. And I mentioned your audience with the president. I mean, you're pretty much, if you know this, but you're described as a pretty big deal these days. You're the guy who helped create Internet Explorer. You're the angel investor from Facebook and Uber and Airbnb. You're rich. You're well-known. How, how much can you relate to the you of, uh, of 40 years ago, the Iranian kid who didn't have much when he arrived in America in the 80s? Um, first of all, when you said all the things I've accomplished, what, what went through my mind is an Iranian joke that like my mom would be like, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> we talk about that all the time, but you, but, but you're, but you're, I mean, I don't think you're going to get that from uh, parents. Yeah, I'm not I think that, become a doctor. No, I mean, I think you, you, the ship sailed when you went to Harvard, that's, that's allowed. You're allowed to do everything, anything after that, surely. It's funny because there's two extremes at which, it's hard to relate to me. At one extreme, most people can't don't relate to somebody who's wealthy and made it at the level I have. At the other end, most people in the world don't relate to somebody who spent their evenings in a basement holding their ears while their neighborhood was getting bombed, or you know had to worry about his mother getting snatched off the streets and beaten because her hijab fell off her head. Uh, both of those are extremes. Um, but there's so many things because I've lived through both extremes that I've had many experiences that lots of people relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming to a country as an immigrant is a story that many, many people mm -hmm. relate to, not just Iranians. Uh, growing up, having to have clothes handed down to me from, you know, older members of the family or worrying that, you know, to go to a vacation happened only once a year and it didn't involve flying to a fancy resort and involved like a eight hour drive to stay in a very cheap hotel, but it was still the best thing ever yeah. because we've been looking forward to it. Those are life experiences that I think lots and lots of people resonate with. Uh, and because I built myself up from there, I think uh, it is easier for me to talk about the importance of opportunity rather than somebody who was born on third base and you know was already like living in the, a life of luxury and then also built a successful company or something. Let, like let's go there. You were six years old when you and Ali, your twin brother, uh, were six years old when the revolution happened. Um, and you have described your childhood as, as very difficult in Iran. I mean, uh, many folks talk about this, but but you you guys were in an interesting location. I mean, you've talked about the 1,000 nights you had to spend in the basement avoiding bombs. Tell me about those days living next to a TV tower in Tehran, the implications of that. Sure. Um, 
first of all, we've now had some arguments because my brother says it was less than a thousand nights and different. <laughs> I've heard different things on Twitter about how many nights Tehran was bombed. So I'm not sure how many nights it was. For me, it sure as hell felt like a thousand nights. Uh, and, you know, many Iranians who lived during that time remember the Ajir Ghermez, the red siren that would go off like just this loud noise. And I, I, I was young enough. I didn't know where the noise was even coming from. Was it on the radio? Was it on the TV or just was it blaring through the streets? But just when that sound came, you had like 30 seconds, I think, to just prepare the candles and kerosene lamps because all the power was going to be cut. And then it was just going to be darkness for the entire city. And basically, we'd go to the basement. Um, and for us, we lived a short walk and a walk that, you know, as a seven-year-old, I could walk to the TV station, sort of the park that was near the TV station, and we could see the t tall tower. Uh, and, you know, Iran at the time had, as I knew it, one TV channel. <laughs> like, as I remembered as a kid, and maybe, again, my memory is wrong, but I, I didn't have 13 channels or, like, mm. 100 channels like today's kids have. There was one channel, right. and it was almost entirely propaganda. There were almost no good cartoons on it. Uh, and... Therefore, the enemy, the Iraq, wanted to take out our communications. They wanted to take out the the, the propaganda sourced for the country, the, the thing that was giving everybody their information, their news, telling them what's going on, hitting hitting the points of communication for government was important. So that, that was their target, and it was very close to our house. Um, what's interesting is I, at the time, didn't even re know what really was going on. I knew there was bombing. My parents were telling me it was the neighboring city that was getting bombed, hmm. uh, and I wasn't—I was too young to recognize that we wouldn't hear it if if it was in a different city. Hmm. You know, like we wouldn't be holding our ears, and they would would say to hold your ears uh, extra tight, and that the best way to hold your ears tight is to also cover your eyes. Uh, and I didn't understand that that was not needed. Uh, if, if if the nearby city was bombing, I was, so I was just holding my eyes and my ears. Uh, and that was, um, looking back on it later, I have more trauma than I did in the moment. In the moment, I remember, like, we would play, like, you know, when the bombs were gone, we'd just be sitting around with candles and, uh, you know, play little word games or voice games where you, like, start a little poem and the next person says the next thing and then the next person says the next thing and just inventing, you know, spoken word games amongst ourselves to keep ourselves entertained. Right. Uh, Speaking of propaganda, I mean, you talk about being a six, seven years old, a, a post-revolution, having to go to school, uh, I guess you're seven, you're eight years old, and, and scream death to America, death to America, um, uh, which which isn't that extraordinary because we know that that's what, what kids had to do at the time. The The interesting part is you talking about the fact that you, you would do it, but you wouldn't believe it. Um, and I, I love that in the sense that um, it says a lot about, I mean, for an adult, that's sort of understandable. They've got the context. You just talked about the context. You didn't know what's going on. Et but somehow you knew that this wasn't real, that you, you know, even though you were chanting the words, it wasn't um, something to buy into for you. How, do, how, does a, how did you avoid indoctrination, do you think? Um. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't, I, I would say because I was lucky to some extent. I was lucky that I had educated parents and I had visited America for actually two years uh, while my mom was getting her master's in computer science. And so I had, I had learned English before I came back to Iran in kindergarten. I was an unusual Iranian that my first day of kindergarten, I didn't speak the language in Iran as an Iranian boy. 
Uh, I had come back to my home country and was learning. And I remember being scared entering kindergarten. And so I had loved the time we spent in America. And when the revolution happened, everybody I loved in my extended family, my da'is, my khalas, my aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody fun left to America. So what I knew is I wanted to go be with the fun people uh, and not be bombed. Uh, and so when I was chanting death to America or stepping on the American flag at the entrance to our school, in, in the back of my mind, I knew I want I want to be there. That's where all my mm. my people who my my family that I grew up with are over there. Uh, and I know they're not getting bombed. And and I knew my mom really wanted to go there. Uh, you know, I knew the cool movies that I couldn't watch came from there, <laughs> you know, and I think this is something many Iranians knew. But what was difficult is you didn't know who else felt that way. Hmm. Uh, and you couldn't share that thought with anybody safely other than your parents. Uh, there was no sense of who might be either with the government or just against you, you know, or you've actually said something very interesting. Uh, I thought this was quite inspired. I mean, it was, it, it, it gets my mind going. You've said at 1980s Iran, I can't remember where you said this, uh, if it was in social media or something, but you said you were living through the ultimate extension of what today we call cancel culture. Uh, can you describe what you mean by that? That's, that's pretty funny. Yes. Uh, well, because, you know, today's cancel culture, people get canceled because basically they're no longer famous or they're no longer loved or they're people think, oh, they did something bad. But, you know, the ultimate extension of it, you've, I saw happen in Iran or, you know, Chinese people saw during the cultural revolution that happened uh, under Mao Zedong, where culture gets to such a point that the society enforces an ideology. And if you speak up against that ideology, you don't just get canceled because people speak negatively of you. You're taken to jail, you're disappeared, you're tortured, possibly killed. Uh, and that for sure happened to, to people. You know, I had a cousin who uh, was against the, the Islamic revolution and she marched in protest and then she was sent to Evin prison for like six or nine months. And she was only a few years older than me. Uh, and, you know, my mom would tell stories of other people who were disappeared. My, my dad's best friend got pulled off the street to because his name was the same as the name of somebody they wanted. Wow. And so just right. just for having the name of somebody who was somebody else who was protesting, he was sent to prison for a year. And then he was let go a year later saying, sorry, we, we got the wrong Humayun, you know. Um, but yeah, Thanks. As, as, yeah, yeah. as an American or as a Westerner, we are so proud of the freedom of speech we enjoy and people are so worried about cancel culture. And I think that is really a good thing to be defending freedom of speech. When you actually don't have freedom of speech, democracy and all the freedoms we take for granted go down really quickly. Uh, speech is one of the first freedoms to, to, to lose. Once you lose your ability to criticize bad things, then things bad things just grow uh, and, and everything goes south. I'm with you, brother. I know that that we'll talk about that in a second with social media. But uh, let me let me just follow this through because it's such an interesting story. You're 10 years old when the arc of your life changes. Tell me about your dad bringing home a Commodore 64 computer and what that meant to you. Um, so I don't know, but I know if I was nine or ten, but I was roughly the age, uh, and he had brought it from Italy. Uh, so, first of all, it had like Italian manuals and <laughs> that I didn't know how to deal with it. It didn't have the right plug to go into the prise bar, like just getting it connected. And, and the computers at that time didn't have screens. So we needed to connect it to the home television and 
find the right wires for dealing with it. Uh, you know, it was just a, it was like a big, app, big keyboard with, uh, that you needed to connect to all the things that you wanted to do with it. Um, but what it represented was, first of all, the future, like, cause he said, this is the future. And I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, and he gave us a book on how to program it. Cause when you turned it on, it didn't do anything. It just had a little prompt and you could type in it. <laughs> Uh, but he said, if you read this book, you can get it to do all sorts of things. It can count, it can play games, it can play music. And we're like, how do we get it to do that? He's like, read the book and learn learn to make it do that. Uh, and I think most kids, if you gave them that challenge today, they wouldn't do that because there'd be so many, mo- so many more fun things to do in their life. Right. They could just go, go play a game or right. whatever. Whereas in our life, there was nothing else fun to do. Uh, you know, you could go out and risk death and watch the tanks in the streets, or you could stay at home and, and learn to get this this machine to count and play music and make games. But it's still remarkable to me that, that you guys as kids, I mean, as the story goes, it's almost mythical, you teach yourselves how to code. I mean, I can't, my sister and I are pretty smart. You know, she ended up being, she's a chair of a department at a university as a professor. I can't imagine us teaching ourselves how to code on a computer as, you know, eight-year-olds or something. How did that happen? Actually, you'd be surprised how many people have a similar story of teaching themselves to code at maybe 12 years old. And what the reality is, folks who have never learned computer programming imagine that it is much harder. They imagine that it is harder than calculus, you know, and you may have taken calculus in, in high school or college. Learning basic coding is way easier than calculus. It's it's about as easy as like seventh grade math to get started mm. or even fifth grade math. And you when you went through seventh grade math, you didn't think, oh, my God, I'm doing, you know, like simultaneous equations with x's and y's right but if you had never ever tried that and at your age you learned about somebody who taught that to themselves when they were 10 it would blow your mind but this is the 80s wasn't it a lot harder that i mean i i figure it's probably a lot easier now but back then yeah i mean i I don't want to uh, pretend that it was super easy but it also wasn't like you know rocket science either but can i also say is it ironic that you, in a way, I mean, given the work you do now, and I, and it's not necessarily as you described because you were from a, a super rich family, but that you had more opportunity with the respect to with respect to computers and technology in the in eighties Iran than many of the young people you're trying to help today by providing resources and training. Right? It's just you you had the computer. It's like get the computer, let them read the book. Is basically what your message is. Yes. Well, I had the computer. I had. The computer wasn't enough. I had the motivation, which was partly because I lived in such a terrible environment that this was the only good thing. I also had a father who was a physicist and a mother who was a computer scientist. So, you know, my dad helped. If I would get stuck, he would be the person I'd go to. Right. I wouldn't say that he taught me, but I wouldn't say that I taught it with just a book and zero help. And most kids don't have a father who will bring them a computer encourage them, help them when they get stuck. And so my parents were a very big part of that opportunity. Uh, And not that kids don't have parents, but just most kids don't have tech savvy parents because it's new and most of us aren't tech savvy. Uh, And that has been what has been unique to me. And and it's funny because when I came to America, my family was poor. You know, we couldn't couldn't afford a home. Uh, You know, I went to a really fancy private school on financial aid. So my brother and I were the 
the poor kids in the school who were the poor immigrants and every one of my classmates had like a Mercedes that was given to them from their parents. Uh, but if you look at the trajectory of my life, this computer and this knowledge has made a massive difference in where I ended up relative to where my high school classmates ended you know, up. You know, I was going to ask about you coming to America because, uh, and, and not that your parents didn't have status and, and uh, you know, being the professor, the computer scientist, all of that, that, um, that we would value in them. But uh, there is a tendency, Hadi, as you would imagine, to look at someone like you and just assume he was one of those Persian rich kids or rich kids that you just described uh, who, who had an upper hand somehow. How, how else could you have achieved such success? Your entire family, the four of you, your mom, dad, and your and Ali, and you lived in one bedroom when you first came to the U.S.? I mean, uh, you, you lived quite modestly. How, what do you think you learned from that? Um, that's a great question. Um, first of all, my dad and mom had no status at all when we came to this country. Uh, you know, my dad had helped start a university in Iran, but uh, because of his immigration status and because he hadn't been published recently in American universities, he couldn't get basically a job as a professor in America. He started working in, in administration at MIT and Harvard and had a much lower status than he enjoyed in Iran. Uh, and in fact, he had to work in Boston while we lived in New York and he'd drive back and forth 200 miles multiple times a week just to see his family while making money. Uh, my mom worked as a secretary by day and a, as a department store salesperson selling clothing at night. Uh, and she has a you know master's in computer science, which you know in this day and age, a woman with a master's in computer science can easily get employed. But being an immigrant from Iran during the 1980s, right. that that was not what basically it was. They had no status. Uh, my extended family in parts of the world had status. My mom's family, the Khosrow Shahis, uh, those members of the family who had gone to Europe had managed to bring more of their money out of Iran. Uh, but my grandparents and my parents had none, and we. We grew up uh, for the first few years, there was a bedroom in my grandparents' house. Uh, and not only we shared one bedroom, there was two twin beds joined together <laughs> for the four of us. Uh, and so I remember in seventh or eighth grade, like I couldn't bring friends home because there wasn't a home. And I would be embarrassed to show them my bedroom because it wasn't my bedroom. It was like my mom's clothes <laughs> were in it with my dad's clothes. Uh, and I remember growing up with my brother and I would fight every night about who gets to sleep on the side of the bed, because if you're in the middle, you'd fall in the crack between the two twin beds uh, and be squeezed between all these people. Um, so, I mean, the, so, the expectation or the or the um, the the romance to a certain extent or, or is to say that teaches you who you are to value material things um how life isn't easy how to overcome adversity was that all true for you or is that is all of that a bit of a a romance it's actually absolutely true for me um you know there's lots of things i would say that i'm humble about but one thing i'm very proud about is having been grounded in just reality of seeing difficulty in life and seeing it juxtaposed with really great things. Like I went through the tough life in, during the Iranian revolution, but I had visited America. And then when I came back to America, I lived through basically a relatively low income childhood, but I was going to school with these very wealthy kids. And so I both, I actually knew what I was missing 
Do you know what I mean? Um, and that gave me not only a sense of, of resilience and ability to overcome adversity, but also a sense of motivation of, I want to get to where those other kids are, or mm. I, I knew where I wanted to get to. How do you um, think? How do you think it manifests itself in your work today? I mean, if I, I don't know if you can even answer this, but do you, do you think? I mean, for example, does it lead you to have more patience with people who have a startup, or or do you? How, how do you actually put those lessons that you've learned into practice in the way you deal with people? Gosh, that's a really good question. I didn't expect such. Uh, thoughtful questions. Um, first of all, not a day goes by that I don't just just think how lucky I am to live the life I've been living. Like to get to go to the White House and meet multiple presidents, you know, given where I started or just to have food every day. Like when I buy something on Amazon and I can click buy and I don't worry about how much money it is or can we afford one? You know, most people don't have the luxury I have. And I, I feel blessed and just knowing that i feel blessed is a great thing it, it makes you a happier person so many people who are, are successful aren't happy uh, the other thing in terms of my investing work as an investor i look for entrepreneurs who have an intrinsic drive for some reason because the hardest challenge with our entrepreneurship is persistence and sticking through failure and you need to have something that's driving and it, different things drive different people so it doesn't need to be the same but that's something I look for. Uh, and then in my work at code.org, uh, it brings meaning to why I'm helping teach computer science. It's not just to help people become coders. It's to help students and children have a pathway of opportunity. Because like I said at the beginning, talent is everywhere and opportunity is not. And uh, there's so many kids who could have the path I had, but they don't have the father I had to, to guide them on, on to what things to learn. And their, their school should give them that preparation. And when schools don't even teach computer science because there's no teachers in the school who think that it's real and the system doesn't put it in as part of the curriculum, kids just get left behind. Uh, and and addressing that so that no kid gets left behind that way is, is what brings meaning to my work. That was a great answer. And as much as that seemed to be off the top of your head, that was... Uh, the, that's that's exactly what I was looking for in terms of the how how it manifests. It makes a lot of sense. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, the period between you know arriving and going to school and and then where you've got to now. And I, I'm talking about the 1990s. I mean, you go to Harvard, then you end up being on the front lines of creating Internet Explorer, as one does. <laughs> this is in the in the 90s. Do you do you look back at that era fondly as or I mean or marvel at how naive the world was about where technology would end up uh, 20 years later. Um, I look at it fondly, but it's also just incredible having seen 20 something years later how much the world has changed from technology. But I was lucky not only to go to Harvard, but to graduate Harvard basically at the dawn of the, the World Wide Web as we know it. So the, the year I graduated was just a perfect time for for somebody who had studied computer science science it was just this explosion of the the coming of age of the pc and the the birth of the world wide web and uh you know joining the internet explorer team i wasn't uh, you know they were so desperate to have good people that it wasn't just that i was lucky to be on that team they were like oh my god we need you and we need as many more people as we can so it was i was at the right place at the right time in a really great way uh, and it's sad because Internet Explorer now is just a s sad joke. It's 
it's such bad technology that Microsoft itself canceled it. Uh, at the time when I was building Internet Explorer, uh, well, to, it started off as a sad joke too, but basically the, the work we did built it up from 1% market share to you know dominant market share as the number one best web browser that everybody was using to connect to this magical internet. Uh, and then Firefox and Chrome came along and Microsoft stopped paying attention to the, to the web uh, and to the web browser and then Internet Explorer just basically declined. But, but the years that I was there were very foundational for me. I learned not only how to manage teams, how to manage products, how to build great technology, uh, but I also learned that I wanted more purpose in the work that I did. Uh, and you know, it brought me purpose that I'm creating a tool that millions of people, hundreds of millions of people were using to discover the internet for the first time. Uh, but it also brought me sort of lack of meaning to recognize that also what I was doing was helping crush a competitor, you know, the small startup Netscape that had popularized the Netscape web browser. Right. And I, I didn't feel good about that part. That didn't make me, didn't bring meaning to my life. Uh, and so I, I wanted, I realized that, you know, the technology I build has global impact, you know, as a, as a 25 year old, I was building something that hundreds of millions of people were using. And it made me start thinking about, okay, if I can have that type of personal impact, what is it's, what is it going to mean later on? Perfect. Uh, That's a perfect segue because I, I said I wanted to come back to technology and and ask a couple of, I mean, quasi philosophical questions about it. But uh, you you've been a big proponent of technology, and technology is awesome. And I I, I don't want to. I'm not necessarily when I'm saying technology referencing, you know, the the thing that helps the our air conditioning in our house or or a surgeon do their work in a hospital, but. But in terms of the gadgets that we carry around in our pockets and the screens, and uh, I mean, technology uh, is increasingly the cause of, we are told by multiple studies over and over again, loneliness, depression, suicide, shaming, uh, you know, a Manichaean world where everything and everyone is seen in black and white or good and bad. Um, how do we contend with that? How do we love technology and know what's happening in terms of the toxicity of it at the same time? Uh, this is a deep question. And first of all, I'm I'm not the only person with an answer. Everybody has their own answers on it. Um, it's funny, the philosopher Yuval Hariri has proposed that man was mankind was at its happiest when we were hunters and gatherers before we domesticated plants and invented farming, yeah, <laughs> which was yeah. probably our first among our first technological inventions after basic stone tools and fire, uh, and that we were happiest then. And the history of mankind since then has been to invent technology that on the one hand makes our lives more productive and more convenient and supports a larger population. And on the other side, reduces some freedom or makes a slave to the tools that we've built or destroys jobs or things like this. Yeah. It's many of the issues we're dealing with with technology today have always are repeated issues. You know, technology that automates jobs is a is something that has happened throughout the history of mankind. Uh, technology that people are scared of because of its impact has been the case since, you know, all time, whether it's the invention of the steam engine, the printing press, all of these things have pros and cons. Um, you know, the way I would say about it is, first of all, I'm proud of us as humanity, as a race to have come from caves to now invent the things we're inventing. But these things that we're inventing can be used for good or for bad. Uh, you know, just like nuclear 
uh, the nuclear inventions of Einstein can make bombs and they can make cheap, clean electricity. Mm -hmm. right. Right. Uh, software technology also, it's not just a question of what could you do, but what should you do? And in fact, uh, this is part of what one of the reasons code.org is important to me. The work I do in terms of education is to make sure that computer science classes teach students to think about the societal impacts of technology. And that's also something that I think belongs as something every kid learns, not just the ones who become the future coders. Right. right. But I, I mean, I like I almost want to say uh, learn the computer science, but at the same time, don't go on Twitter and see white nationalist stuff and body shaming. I mean, I, I don't know uh, how you navigate yeah. that, you know? Yeah. And social media, especially right now, is sort of the tip of the spear of what people complain about or are worried about from, from a standpoint of technology. Uh, but there are many other risks or potential downsides. And one of the things we need to recognize is that technology is an amplifier. It amplifies our own instincts as humans. Uh, you know, humans invented war, but then they can use technology to make bigger work tools for worse wars. And, you know, as humans, we're not perfect, especially as societies, we're not perfect. Uh, and so social media can bring out the best in us and it can, can bring out the worst in us. Uh, and it's always difficult to figure out what is the right way to do this stuff. Um, but what I'm sure about is as we teach students computer science, we should teach them to think about the societal expectations and societal implications. Whether they're the ones becoming the coders or the ones becoming the voters, uh, they should have an understanding about this stuff. So speaking of uh, social media, you were an early investor in Facebook, uh, and I'm not gonna ask you about the details of how you feel about you know uh, what people have said about Facebook or the back what, what happened in the back rooms or decisions that were made. But I do wanna ask you on a general level, like we know, how big a deal Facebook has become, but it has gone from, um, you know, a benevolent way to stay in touch with your ex from high school uh, to what many see as this evil instigator of much of the misinformation and polarization our world faces today. Um, you know, we come from a country, our ancestry, where a revolution went wrong, you know, in the eyes of many of us today. It was a popular revolution, right? And didn't work out the way we wanted it. What, what do you do when a company you have worked with or invested in or, or hoped for does not end up being everything you wanted? Uh, I should first of all say when I, you know, I was lucky to have met Mark Zuckerberg when he was 21 years old. Uh, and that was for sure being at the right place at the right time. Uh, and at that time, nobody envisioned today's Facebook. There were no sort of backroom decisions then around some evil plan to control the flow of information or impact elections or things like that. Uh, his vision was around connecting people to bring people closer together, uh, to provide sort of the backbone of how personal identity is defined on the internet. Uh, and I would say very much a well-meaning, well-intentioned vision, but also very bold and big vision. I don't think anybody at the time could have imagined the level of influence, impact, power for good or bad that Facebook has. And I think many of the last few years, Facebook has just been playing catch up with uh, imp impacts that it didn't predict. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problems it's trying to solve aren't just Facebook's, you know, um, one joke I made once is Facebook is, has a challenge of trying to cure human nature disorder. Uh, you know, Facebook isn't alone. Uh, communication mediums and publication mediums often bring out the worst in us. Uh, and 
you know, that's not if Facebook didn't do it, Twitter would be doing it. And if right. Twitter wasn't doing it, so like, you know, it's not any one organization. And yet Facebook, by being the largest, has both more resources and as and more responsibility to do better. Do uh, you end up personally lamenting it though? Do you go, hey Boba John Cherry and why why did I put money into this thing? Or why I mean do you or or or, or do you go there, I mean, in your in your own mind at all? Um I don't, but maybe that's because I'm rationalizing and feeling okay about myself. But the reality is, you know, I put my money in when it was a pretty small company and I took it out soon after the IPO, uh, long before any of these issues. So there was no point of time there that I thought this is a terrible company. And in fact, I thought it was a great company. And these are these are people inventing, you know, future highly important technology. Right. Uh, Right now, when I look at it, there's many things I would do different. And there's times that I've written Mark and, and given him suggestions for things I'd do different. I'm not the type to try to make public noise and bash anybody or anything. You know, the, you can get very popular throwing stones at other groups and bashing people for doing things the wrong way. Uh, and I get critics doing that to me. Um, but I, I prefer to stay focused on either doing good myself or applauding people who are doing good. And, and I'd rather be less popular but keep my my public words to be positive. Uh, but I have shared privately thoughts with either Mark or Cheryl Sandberg about things they could do differently. To be fair, everyone has changed their mind. I mean, is, is, I mean, I, I remember literally probably 12, 15, 14, 15 years ago proposing something when I was um, working at the CBC at the network saying, what if we did a, a special called, is Facebook really good for you? You know, um, and, and at the time it was a big question, you know, it was almost like a, a very outlandish question to ask, you know, a very cynical question because who, you know, nobody thought well, what's wrong with Facebook. I mean, it's, you know, where I go and, and see old pictures of my friends or whatever. So it's clearly evolved and, and um, uh, become maybe a runaway train in some ways. Uh, I appreciate everything you've just said. Well, um, by the way, also isn't just Facebook, you know. Right. What should the rules be for social media? And especially as Iranians, since we recognize the importance of freedom of speech, like it's a tough problem to solve. Uh, it's, it's not just one company's fault uh, and how to solve it by regulating speech is not simple yes at all yes uh, let me let me end off with a couple of personal questions uh um i, I wanted to come back to your twin brother uh ali who not only is he's an identical twin right you guys are like yes. twin twins uh, uh who's also been your business partner i mean he's the co-founder of, of code.org uh i i always think these things with twins are so interesting to me i mean are you guys you're clearly ambitious nobody does all the things you've ever done in your life without being an ambitious person and a very focused and directed person. How competitive are you? And and why didn't one of you go into music or medicine? I mean, you both literally have uh, trod the same path. It's very curious. Tell me about you and Ali. So first of all, I would say our, we are competitive, but I think in a good way. I remember always growing up that you know, most ambitious people are compete with themselves. Like I can do this, but then I could do better and then I could do better. But when you have a genetic identical version of yourself, <laughs> if I would compete with him, it's because obviously if he can do it, I should be able to also, you know, because there's not a single thing he's got since birth that I didn't have. And so it would be more 
you know, he would learn a song on the piano that I didn't think I could learn. But if he learned it, I can definitely do it. And it'll make me think I can learn an even harder song, you know, uh, or when he started his first startup and it was successful and he sold it for a lot of money. I was like, wow, obviously I could do that too. And it wasn't because I wanted to beat him. It was because he had clearly showed that that's something one of us can do. So I, I want to also be able to do it. Uh, and I would, I think that's a relatively healthy competition. Um, but I would also say siblings also have tensions. We've had tensions between us many times throughout our life. I don't want to pretend that it's just been like, oh, everything has been positive with nothing bad. Uh, but we will always be brothers. Uh, and so that and just the life stories we've shared, much of what we just discussed has been not just my story, but also his story. Uh, it's a very unique to have to have shared something like that with somebody in that. So that's going to have a bond between us that is pretty unbreakable. My sister is probably the only person in the world who can, you know, get me with just a look, you know, who yep. can just uh, uh, antagonize me or win me over or whatever with just a one little look of the eye. I can just imagine the connection between you two, the symbiosis and the energy is is through the roof, both in a good and bad way. I mean, it's it's amazing that you do all these things together. Um, let me finish. You, you've talked about being an Iranian who has led the American dream. Tell me how you identify the American dream today. Sure. Um, you know, I say I'm an example of the, somebody who's living the American dream. I don't, wouldn't say I've led it, but I've lived it. Uh, and, you know, I would say America is a country, but America is even more than a country. It's an idea. Uh, America just stands, I think, globally as, an, as the idea that people should have freedom, equality of opportunity, uh, and the chance to build some a better life for yourself. Uh, you know, the, the American ideals may not even always be held to in our country, in the country that I'm living in, but they're ideas that have inspired the entire world. And to me, the American dream is something that I had read about when I was in Iran. The idea that you could be poor, but work hard, work smart, and build not only a living for yourself, but to, you know, live a very comfortable life and you did it yourself. Uh, is is a powerful idea that lots and lots of people want either for themselves or for their children. Uh, and part of why I started Code.org is I realized that at least in America, that, that dream is not working out for lots of people. There's lots of people who are working hard, are learning the things that school is telling them they should learn, and then they graduate and they're full of debt and they don't see how they're going to make it. And and there isn't a path that works for anybody in their neighborhood, uh, and they don't see anybody who's made it. And it feels like the, the the pathways to the middle class or out of the middle class, or none of it feels like it's working anymore. Uh, and part of my motivation for starting Code.org is I know that in computer science, there's a pathway that totally works. If you get really good at computer science, the sky's the limit, uh, not just right now, but for the next 50 years or longer this is a subject area that's that's going to be changing our world, an opportunity not just to make money, but to also make impact, to leave a footprint, to invent the future of humanity. Uh, and so I believe that all, every school should make that possible for students. It's great to talk to you, man. A final question. When are you starting your cover band featuring the music of The Cure? <laughs> wow, I did not expect that question. <laughs> You know, I, I'm in a family. My brother and I, at the same, roughly the same time, we taught ourselves coding. We also taught ourselves to play the piano, and we both play piano and guitar. And I've now—I uh, don't have a cover band. My my own family, my kids and I, have started a band. 
Uh, over the pandemic, we started a band called the Quarantinis because while we were in quarantine, my eldest son learned the, the, the piano and my youngest son learned the guitar. Uh, and so we're, we basically played lots of different songs and The Cure and Coldplay are probably the two bands we like to cover. I, I just love that you're teaching them uh, new romantic, uh, new wave music from the early 80s uh, with a lot of eyeliner and hair gel. I love that. Yeah, I have an eight-year-old who loves U2 and The Cure. It's pretty funny. It's brilliant. Hadi Paratovi, Khaili, Khaili Mochakaram, I really appreciate uh, the time you've taken with us today, your insights, and um, shedding some light on, on, the, on your story. And I think it'll be instructive for a lot of people. Thank you for this, and thank you for the work you do around education. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hadi Paratovi, an Iranian-American tech entrepreneur, investor, CEO, and co-founder of the education nonprofit Code.org. Hadi joined us from Seattle, Washington today. That is full time for this special edition of Rook. For all things Rook-related, including our previous episodes, our guests, our information, rookmedia.com is the place to go where you can also become a patron of our program, rookmedia.com. Remember, there are new episodes of the Contemporary History of Iran every Thursday on these same platforms. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Savvy Rohan, Ponta the Artist, the fabulous Kian Alhaimer, Dodd, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already on any or all of our platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And in the meantime, as ever, Mizun Bashi.